If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Simon, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, I've always been interested in aviation since I was uh, a child. My father had an interest in it and he was a flying instructor and had aeroplanes. So I was always around aeroplanes since I was about the age of about six, seven years old. Good stuff. So when did you join the Royal Navy and why did you choose the Navy? Uh, so I joined the Royal Navy in January 2002. Uh, and the reason I chose the Navy was when I was at school at, um, back home in Belfast. I uh, was in the Command Cadet Forces in the RAF section and um, one afternoon after school the uh, Navy recruiter came around, a guy called Martin Quinn, and uh, he showed us a video about the Fleet Air Arm. And I didn't really know much about the Fleet Air Arm at the um, time and I'd been pr predominantly sort of focused on maybe joining the Air Force. And the video he showed just looked really interesting, exciting, you know, traveling the world, uh, flying off, you know, Royal Navy warships uh, and, and doing all sorts of interesting flying like that. And I thought, well, you know, the guys that I went to school with, you know, a lot of them were going to go off and be lawyers and do all that sort of stuff. And, you know, they wouldn't apply to one law firm. So I thought, well, you know, I want to be a military pilot. I'm not just going to bet all my horses on, you know, joining the Air Force. So I thought I'll put an application into the Navy and the um, Air Force at the same time. So did you always want to join the helicopter force? And no, I originally wanted to fly jets when I joined the Navy. Um, but, you know, flying jets is, uh, you know, pretty hard to get through all the courses and all of that sort of stuff. So whenever I finished my elementary flying training at uh, Barkston Heath, I got streamed onto Rotary Wing and then went to Shawbury. Um, so, you know, my career path was set to be a helicopter pilot from that point on. So can you talk us through some of your basic training and the aircraft you started on? Yeah, so I started um, not too far from where we are today, up at uh, RAF Cranwell back in um, around April 2003, uh, and did a to do ground school and then went over to Barston Heath, uh, and then spent six mo months at Barston Heath flying the Slingsby Firefly, and in those days it was the um, T67 M260, um, which... 260 horsepower, quite powerful, quite quite a fun uh, training aircraft to uh, fly. Uh, my course officer back in those days was Al Wade, so a lot of people in the um, military flying community and air show community will know of Al, who um, sadly passed away a few years ago. But he was a you know incredible guy and an incredible instructor, so I was very lucky lucky to get to fly with him a few times. And on this basic training course, was it just Navy guys or was there a mix of everyone in there? Uh, so when I went through, it started out as the Joint Elementary Flying Training School uh, and then became DEFTS, which was Defence Elementary Flying Training School while I was there. And it was split into Army uh, and Navy squadrons. Uh, so whilst we all, you know, Army and Navy guys at Barston Heath shared the um, crew room, um, we were we were doing slightly different courses, and you know the Navy guys flew the T 
T67M260, whereas the Army guys in those days flew the T67M160. Um, so there was you know, difference in, in the courses. They didn't do things like aerobatics and, and formation flying, I think. And did you know what type you wanted to go on to uh, during the training? Uh, during training, I didn't really have a particular focus. I, I thought I'd either like to fly the Lynx or um, you know, join the Commando Helicopter Force and fly the Sea King um, Four in the in the Commando role. One of the those were the two things I'd sort of had an idea that I'd like to do. So let's talk about the Lynx. What were your first thoughts on the aircraft? Uh, my first thoughts on the Lynx is that it's um, it's a very sporty looking helicopter, um, and it's you know, quick, um, you know, it still holds the world re speed record for a helicopter, uh, for a true helicopter to the, you know, to this day, which was set in August 1986. Um, yeah, so I, I've always thought it's a, a, a great, you know, looking helicopter and, you know, it's, a, it's an absolute sports car in helicopter terms. Uh, so the role of the Lynx, for the, as far as the Royal Navy's been concerned, has always been anti-surface unit warfare or ASUW uh, with a small u uh, as we tend to you know refer to it in the in the navy uh, and that's basically uh, going out uh, building up a surface picture with the radar uh, out at sea um, what we call the recognized maritime picture looking where all the vessels are the pattern of life all that sort of stuff and then you know looking for hostile vessels and things like that so if you're at war you would then be hunting those vessels down targeting them marking them and then you know potentially engaging them with you know missile systems so that that was a primary role you know for ASUW uh, it also the Lynx is fairly unique in, in that it's quite a multi-role helicopter mm. uh, so it has other roles like uh, anti-submarine warfare and for the Royal Navy that means carrying uh, torpedoes and depth charges so it's got no ability to find a submerged uh, submarine you know, it needs to be directed by a, a you know an anti-submarine helicopter like a Merlin or a Sea King or or be directed by a frigate that's got its you know sonar uh, and and in contact with the you know the hostile submarine and then the Lynx would basically drive itself to the waypoint that you know or follow instructions from the helicopter or the sh the other helicopter or the other ship to you know a weapon release point uh, and then either drop a depth charge or a torpedo in the water so can you talk us through some of your ground training on the Lynx? So ground training on the Lynx when I went through was about um, six weeks of ground school at the engineering training school at Yeovilton. So it was uh, delivered by engineers uh, and we learnt all facets of the Lynx, you know, mechanical systems, avionics systems, you know, weapon systems, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's very, very in-depth. Uh, knowledge probably actually really more than you need to know about those systems f for actually flying it but it gives you a good grounding and understanding of how the helicopter works so that when you are flying it and things are going wrong you um, have a better understanding of what might be going wrong with it and certainly helps debrief the um, engineers when you get back. Hmm. Was there a sim in your time? Yes there's always been a sim so when I when I first uh, started uh, Lynx flying I started out on the um, Mark III Lynx or the, the Haas III um, and that simulator was a fairly old, old school simulator. It had um, cathode ray tubes <laughs> you know, for yeah. screens in front of it, uh, you know, for the you know for your visuals. Um, but the cockpit was pretty representative, and it flew um, pretty much like a Lynx. But you know, compared to simulators these days, and certainly in comparison to the likes of the Wildcat simulator, it's um, you know it was a very old old school simulator. But then the the Lynx Mark III was a pretty old school helicopter. 
you know, even at the time when I went through in the mid 2000s. Really? Yeah, <laughs> by a long way. So how many actually marks of links were there? A lot of marks of links uh, for the RN. Uh, they started out with the um, Mark II or Has II. Uh, that got upgraded to the Has III. Uh, and then there's different variants within the Has III. Um, uh, and then they upgraded it to the Mark VIII. Uh, and again, there was two or three different variants of the Mark VIII over its life as it got various updates and, and different avionics fits. But the, the three sort of baseline models that the Royal Navy had at the time were you know, the Mark II in the early 80s, so that's you know, Falklands. And then you're talking Mark III, you know, Gulf War, uh, and then sort of mid-90s onwards, Mark VIII. But the Mark III um, operated on the front line until I think about 2010. Uh, and it still operated as a training aircraft until 2013 with the Royal Navy, oh, wow. so that's when they retired the last uh, Mark III's. But it, you know the technology in it was pretty much 1960s, 1970s technology. Yeah. So can you remember your first flight in the Lynx? Yeah, I remember it well. It was uh, with a guy called um, Mark Baines, who was a reservist instructor at the time. Uh, and it was just a familiarization trip. Uh, from Yeovilton down to our relief landing ground at Merrifield uh, in Somerset uh, and just showing me you know, some of the things that it could do, effects of controls. Um, so I remember, you know, remember it pretty well. I remember it being a very um, demanding aircraft to fly um, initially um, because it's got very, very responsive controls. I and mean, when you come from other helicopters that have got less responsive controls, it's very easy to over control on it mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, when you're gaining experience on it. So let's talk about your flying training. What would you be conducting uh, during this phase and what was it like to hover? Did that take a bit of getting used to? So yeah, I remember the first time I you know, hovered the links, and I've seen it subsequently with all the students that I've taught over the years when they come from you know, something like a, you know, the Squirrel or you know, Juno, yeah. Jupiter, that kind of thing. They um, find it quite hard to hover initially because it's extremely you know, sensitive and responsive on the controls. It's more like a you know, high-performance fixed-wing aircraft in terms oh, of right. its control response uh, compared to other helicopters. So the tendency is for people to over control and have a very unsteady hover it's not particularly difficult to hover it's just trying to relax on the controls and trim the aircraft out and and put it into a stable hover and actually you know once you've learned how to do that the the aircraft's extremely easy to hover and you can um, have a very stable hover with it and what are the aircraft's strengths and weaknesses uh, for the Lynx, you know, the aircraft strengths, you know, speed is one of its uh, strengths and its agility. Um, really, it's you know very manoeuvrable, high control power. So for a maritime aircraft, you know, landing on a pitching, heaving deck in, in a high sea state, uh, you can um, respond to you know ship movement and all of that sort of stuff as you're you know landing onto the deck. The other thing about the maritime variant is of the Lynx is that tricycle undercarriage mm. with the big shock-absorbing oleos. Uh, so it can take a very, very uh, heavy vertical impact, much more so than most other helicopters. And generally when seas are rough, we aim to land quite firmly. Um, so we plant the, the aircraft onto the deck and make it stick to the deck so we've got you know, reduce the risk of it sliding off you know, after landing. Uh, and then the other thing that sort of makes it the, you know, the potent maritime capability that it is, uh, you know, with uh, in terms of just its ability to operate in poor weather is the deck lock system. Okay. Um, so that's a hydraulic sort of pincer that comes out of the bottom of the uh, aircraft fuselage, uh, and it's operated by 
uh, the pilot with a button on the collective and it just shoots into a metal grid on the flight deck and then uh, closes the pincers uh, through the holes in the grid and then pulls the helicopter down about an inch um, further down on it and uh, compressing its um, undercarriage and that just stops the aircraft you know from sliding off the deck uh, you, uh, if the ship turns or, or rolls until the point at which we can put um, nylon lashings um, on the aircraft to secure it. Uh, the weaknesses, I guess, it's always been the weakness of the Lynx is really its um, fuel endurance. You know, it's never really had more than uh, two hours unless you put auxiliary tanks and stuff into it. So, you know, a two, two hour endurance and in, in, the, in these sort of day, this day and age, you know, commanders want persistence from their air aircraft. So they want their aircraft to stay airborne um, for a considerable amount of time, you know, and, and spend more time on task, which is why we see a lot of tasks being given to, you know, unmanned air systems now, because they've got a lot of persistence. They can stay airborne for a very, very long time. And you kind of mentioned it uh, briefly before, but the cockpit was all um, analog, as it were, or was it any digital system? Yeah, yeah so the Mark III Lynx was a completely analog cockpit. Uh, in terms of you know flying ins performance instruments and control instruments, uh, and the uh, engine gauges were all you know, analog, um, you know, gauges with needles and stuff on them. Uh, in terms of navigation system, it you know had a Doppler navigation system that fed a TANS tactical air navigation computer, uh, which is a very old school computer, and it would tend to drift quite a lot in the early eighties, early nineties. The Mark III got fitted with a, tr a Trimble GPS, which was bolted onto the top of the instrument combing on the um, observer side on the left-hand side of the cockpit. But that was completely standalone, and it was generally used to update TANS, so you could um, take the lap along off that GPS and then just put, give TANS updates to basically drag the plot back to where the aircraft actually was because of the you know the Doppler over the sea, the surface of the sea. You know, the, the navigation computer would. Um, drift. Uh, when we moved on to the, the Mark 8, it had a, um, uh, you know, a, a computer processor which uh, did a lot of the, the navigation, uh, which brought a lot of the uh, systems together. The cockpit, the actual, you know, cockpit though, in terms of your know, performance instruments and control instruments and engine gauges was still all analog, you know, old school steam gauges. Uh, and it was really the mission system that got digitized so you know the the plot you know it would be able to take information off the radar and then put it onto you know a tactical situational display uh, screen uh, and then you know the observer would be able to manipulate those tracks and stuff and and the radar would tell it you know what you know course and speed you know a vessel would have whereas in the mark 3 that was all done manually you know and, and manually to an extent where you know an observer would have a sheet of acetate uh, they Put it, it would be the same shape as the radar screen, it would get put onto the radar screen and then they'd start the clock and uh, dot with a marker pen all the, um, the uh, radar returns, take the acetate off and then put it on a, a gridded plotting board that they had on their knee, um, plot it, plot those onto the Latin long and then six minutes later dot them again, plot it and then they, you know, with a line and a protractor then work out the distance the dots had moved uh, and the you know the the course that they were taking and then do some you know speed times distance maths to uh, work out the, the speed so it was a very manual yeah. thing and it, and it really limited how many ships that you could plot at any one time whereas you know the the mark 8 
um, variant you know, where the computer was doing all that meant that you could plot a lot more aircraft at, at any one time and then since we oh sorry ships at any one time and since we've moved on you know to wildcat you know that does even more of that stuff and, and and there's a lot more ways of manipulating the aircraft so what was your first squadron and where were you based the the links maritime links community is very small uh, and we've only ever really had two squadrons at any oh, one okay, time right. a training squadron and a frontline squadron so generally you tend to rotate between the two um, so students back in the day in the links would uh, train on 702 squadron uh, and before my time that used to be the whole links force used to be at portland but in 1999 they moved up to yeovilton um, so 815 and 702 squad naval air squadrons were based at yeovilton so did my Aircrew training, my you know my links uh, training on 702 Naval Air Squadron. When then when I got awarded my wings, moved uh, just a bit further down the, the air station to 815 Naval Air Squadron, and that's the the frontline link squadron uh, back in the day. Uh, were you ever based on the carriers or the ships? Uh, did you ever like do like a stint, you know, like a month on the carrier kind of thing? Uh, so links. Uh, uh, aircraft and links flights um, so the squadron gets split down into flights which is a, an aircraft two aircrew although you might have a training an aircrew under training uh, augmenting the flight and then you have seven or eight maintainers uh, plus an aircraft controller uh, as part of the flight and they will um, be attached to a small ship now the way that they've done it has changed on and off over the years between you know they used to have what they called fully integrated flights where that you know ship's flight would stay with a, a ship for a whole tour but it, you know due to manning and and you know um equ you know equipment sort of constraints and ships all over the years they've, they've changed that around so i think people tend to chop and change a little bit between ships more these okay. days um but in you know when i first started it was integrated flight so you know i i started out with the hms sutherland flight from what was called my p2 time so i was you know that trainee augmentee pilot so the pilot was a flight commander and then i went to um you know learn a bit more about life at sea uh, and all those sort of things that you just can't do at shore at mm -hmm. yellowtown so learn how the ship's flight works at sea so fully trained to fly the aircraft but I don't necessarily know everything about just how it all works with the rest of the Navy and the ship. Um, so you, usually that's done six to nine months and then a naval pilot or a naval observer comes back to the squadron HQ at Yeovilton, does what they call a certificate of competence, which is a couple of weeks doing various flying, practical flying exams, ground-based training, uh, and you know, written and, and oral examinations and stuff like that, and then on completion of that, you get awarded your um, certificate of competence, and then you can become like a P1 or an O1, and then you you get allocated to your own flight. Um, so for me, my first flight was HMS Sutherland flight as a P2, and I was lucky enough to go out to the Gulf uh, and operate in the Northern Arabian Gulf on uh, around 2006, 2007, uh, and and uh, that was part of Optelic, uh, and. In those days, it was protecting the Iraqi oil platform. So they have two uh, massive uh, oil platforms, which basically uh, act as, uh, they're not oil platforms, sorry, they're oil terminals. So, you know, the oil in Iraq is you know, drilled and, and brought up in the country of Iraq, but they don't have much in the way of port infrastructure right. because of the geography of um, Iraq. So, uh, and their port structure is too small for super tankers, so they pump it out uh, through pipelines to these oil terminals at sea, and then these two oil terminals, the um, 
uh, you know the sh the super tankers will, will dock there and then take on the oil there um, but it's in quite hotly contested waters right in the top end of the northern arabian gulf that's very close to you know iranian territorial waters and you know, depend on which country you are you've got different lines that you believe to be your territorial waters and it's all contested so you know, the um, coalition had you know american australian british ships up there protecting those two oil platforms at the time very um closely until a point you know in time where the iraqis were able to protect it themselves mm. and did you work with any of the other uh, other services and maybe any other nations yeah, I've worked with lots of, I've worked with the other two services, the Army and the, Na and the Air Force. I've worked with um, most NATO nations as well, you know, either, uh, you know, in the Gulf or uh, out on, you know, the standing Na um, NATO maritime group, uh, which is a big sort of maritime, a NATO maritime patrol in the Mediterranean made up of different nation ships. So you've got like Greece, Turkey, uh, Spain, the USA, uh, UK, Germany. Uh, you know, all operating in that group, and they put, you know patrol the Mediterranean uh, and carry out multinational you know, training exercises. So a lot of anti-submarine warfare type activity and anti-surface you know for warfare exercises around the bed. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, it was quite good fun. <laughs> uh, did you ever work with any of the fast jet guys? Uh, in terms of links operating, not really. Um, you know, we te they tend to do their own thing, and, and you know when I was at the sort of height of my links career the you know the royal navy fast jet fleet had sort of you know the sea harrier had been retired uh, and those guys were mostly in afghan you know the navy pilots that we had left whether they'd sent to america to you know do sea corn capability on the f-18 or the av-8b or um you know they were uh, on the um, joint harrier force um you know flying the the gr7s and nines in afghanistan and stuff so very little contact with them uh, what we used to do though, we used to do, you know, fighter evasion training, you know, once a year. So generally would, you know, go around, fly low level around Exmoor and the Bristol Channel, trying to avoid hawks and stuff like that, um, basically. And we're generally quite successful because it's quite hard for a, you know, a fast jet to visually beat a helicopter in a low level environment. Um, unless it's, you know, if it's got a radar, uh, you know, then you know they're going to find us. But generally, if you're trying to do it visually, it's pr it's pretty hard to beat a helicopter, especially with you know a low vis grey camouflage scheme and stuff on it. So Simon, how many hours did you get on the links? So when I left the links in 2013, I had uh, about 1850 or something like that when I left. Um, it was a and then I moved on to the Wildcat. I was trying to hang on to try and get to 2000, but unfortunately they, the Navy decided the need was uh, greater for me to go to uh, Wildcat. And with the benefit of hindsight, I, you know, I don't regret that decision. So.